Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clinician's Brief podcast for a very special episode today on canine infectious respiratory disease. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Beth Mollison, and today we welcome none other than the wonderful Dr. Scott Weiss. Dr. Weiss is a veterinary internal medicine specialist and expert in infectious and parasitic diseases working at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College. He writes and speaks extensively about infectious and zoonotic diseases, particularly on the Worms and Germs blog, which we will talk about a little bit later, and serves in a global capacity as a champion for zoonotic disease education and antimicrobial stewardship. And I am honored to be taking up some of his time today. I know it has been a busy few weeks for Dr. Weiss, and we really appreciate him pretending like he's not sick of discussing canine infectious respiratory disease. So Dr. Weiss, welcome, and thank you for being here. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's let's rewind a little bit, if you don't mind. Kind of take me back to <clears throat> mid November, mid to late November, when quote unquote all this started. What were kind of the first signs that potentially something unique, or at least an increase in respiratory disease, was going on? Well, we've probably got two things to consider. One is change in disease, and one is change in awareness. We're talking about disease, and we've probably got both of these layered on. Um, you know, I get calls, you know, every week saying, I think we're seeing more respiratory disease here. Or are we seeing more severe disease? But I've been getting those for years. So I think we've always got this clustering that happens. I get it. But we've probably had an increase in baseline over the last few years. It seems like we're getting more and more disease. And normally we see ups and downs all the time. You get little outbreaks or little clusters of disease in an area. And when your rate's kind of sneaking up and your clusters are still there, it gets a little bit more noticeable. So sorting out the signal noise issue is a bit of a challenge right now. So was November a really big bang in terms of disease or was it a big bang in terms of awareness? And like a lot of things, there's probably a little bit of both. Again, we've seen this, this increase coming up. We had a couple areas this summer in the fall in particular that had some nice high increases and seems to have come back down like we expect with infectious diseases. But I'd say that this has probably been on the radar for at least a couple of years that things have been changing a bit. And when we start to see, or when you start to see those uptick in calls, or of course, even media headlines in the recent months, what is your approach? Do you kind of sit back and say, hey, we're going to wait to see how this plays out and kind of tell me what that looks like maybe behind the scenes from a public health perspective? Is there testing that immediately starts or what are kind of those first steps to trying to tease apart something like these increased reports? Well, it's tough because we have no surveillance, so we really don't have any idea what's going on normally, which makes it really tough to sort out what's going on in abnormal times. And we typically have absolutely no money and, you know, money makes surveillance happen, makes testing happen. So usually what happens is I think we're keeping an eye on what we get in terms of, you know, reports about disease, talking to labs, talking to people, seeing what's in the media and remembering that all those are partial sources and they tell us something and trying to put the picture together. And then when we have a need to look into it more, we start doing a bit of a deeper dive. So we'll talk to diagnostic labs, we'll talk to, to clinics, people are putting their data together. We try to get lots of little different data sources. And we also look at some insurance claim data just recently. And that gives us, it, it's a proxy because only you know, a small percentage of animals are insured, but it's still something. So when you start putting all these things together, you start seeing some common themes. And I think the common themes we're seeing are, yeah, we're generally seeing a bit more. We think we're seeing a bit more respiratory disease and the insurance claims kind of fit with that gradually increasing. The, the noise that's occurred in some areas is probably real. Oregon seemed to have a big blip in cases late summer, midsummer, late summer, kind of stretching into fall, and it's come back down. And that fits with what we're hearing on the ground. And when we look at kind of broadly, it seems like it is patchy, like we'd expect for what we think is probably just our normal diseases. So it comes up in some, in some areas, goes down. Some areas are completely unaffected. 
Uh, some areas have had more of this gradual rise over time. So the, the challenge is really trying to get all the data we can get, um, often with no money, and then try to figure out what happens. And one of the problems with, with testing data is, you know, we don't typically recommend testing your individual dog with respiratory disease. So your dog has got CIRDC or kennel cough. Testing really doesn't impact the care of it because it doesn't really change. If it's Bordetella and, it, and it's not doing that bad, it's not going to get antibiotics from me anyway. So whether it's viral or bacterial, it may not impact our outcome. It tells us interesting information. It lets us think about infection control, vaccination, things like that. But for your average pet owner, it's sometimes hard to justify the cost of a PCR panel, for example, for testing. So we don't get a lot of that done for good reason. Um, it's more valuable in a population standpoint. So if you have a kennel, if you have a shelter or daycare, then the testing gets more valuable. But it means that our testing is really sporadic and it's biased to uncommon situations. And it's probably more biased to severe cases. You're more motivated to test a dog with pneumonia. And that brings another one of our challenges with a lot of our causes of this. Uh, they're not shed for very long. So, as you know, kennel cough is caused by a lot of different things, including a bunch of viruses. And the viruses don't tend to be shed for a long period of time, at least some of them. So by the time the dog gets sick, starts coughing, comes into the clinic, if we don't sample right away, we may have missed the time to pick up that virus. If they develop complications like pneumonia, we've probably definitely missed that viral start. So the virus inside of things, it's gone, but we have secondary bacterial pneumonia. So even when we have testing data, um, you know, it's only part of the story. Because when we look at just the surveillance that we do and others do, you know, we only identify a cause about half the time in normal situations because of issues of not testing for everything, because of issues with timing. And what we're seeing now, I think, is basically the same pattern. Uh, we're seeing the same mix of the usual suspects and, the, and, the, and a big mix of negatives, which we expect. Um, and that kind of all comes down to what we'll talk about in a bit is what the cause is. And the cause is probably our usual suspects doing their usual things at a bit of a higher rate. Wonderful, because that takes me, <clears throat> excuse me, to kind of my next question, which, you know, obviously there's been so much media attention and so much attention even from very reliable sources about this. But I have heard you say that that our pattern of spread does seem to be more in line with maybe an increase of our usual suspects. What kind of tells you that? And what would you expect case spread to look like in a typical, say, unique pathogen um, sort of outbreak? Well, it really varies, but I think we have a couple of different things to look at. One is just the concept in medicine, right? Common things occur commonly. And when we see a strange case, it's usually caused by something regular that's just manifesting itself a little bit differently. So, you know, we don't want to ignore new things because new things happen. COVID is a great reminder of that, right? But most of the time, you know, it's not something new that comes in. So when we look, for example, if you've got a really highly virulent virus, a really transmissible virus that comes in, we've got no immunity because it hasn't been here before, we expect pretty dramatic spread. So for, if you think back to 2015, when canine influenza showed up in the U.S., it was obvious when it hit an area, a lot of dogs got sick. And it's not a situation where you'd have a group of dogs at a daycare or a kennel or a park and, you know, four or five would get sick. They'd all get sick and they'd all get sick really quickly, or at least almost all of them. And we're not really seeing that here, I don't think, at least that, that's not our typical thing. We're seeing that, you know, you got clusters, you got the odd sick dog. We're not seeing it whip through a population where you get massive rates. And then things come back down. And if we look at the insurance claim data, yeah, things were up in some areas, but they're up, you know, 20 to 75%. That's not a massive increase. You know, it, it's, it's important. It's notable. 
but it's not like new virus immune population, naive population increase. So, you know, we could have some of this not very transmissible. So you can see this low level, but if we got something that's really new and it's really sweeping North America, I'd expect to see a lot more dramatic um, disease, a lot more, lot bigger morbidity, bigger attack rates. So we don't say no. The other thing that's going on about this is we're, we're in an era now where we can test really easily for new things. So in the last 10 years or so, the, the genomics work that can be done is really remarkable. So you can take a sample and sequence all the viral bits that are in there. And then you assemble them and try to figure out what's there. And we normally, we talk about the bacterial microbiota a lot now, or microbiome. We have a virome, um, a lot of viruses that are just normally part of us and our animals. So we go through, we can sequence all the viral bits that are there, see if there's something new, and then we try to figure out if that's relevant. And so far, what we're hearing, or largely what we're not hearing from labs that are looking at this, is that nothing really remarkable is coming up outside of the usual suspects. And again, if we had something that was brand new and really kind of widely disseminated, I think we would know by now. I think the labs would have picked that up. Now, the one kind of question we've had coming up is uh, a little bacterium that's been identified in the lab in New Hampshire. It's a mycoplasma lycoridae. It's a really small, kind of strange bacterium. They first reported that back in the spring. It's kind of oh, it's interesting. Let's see what they get out of it. Uh, and it's, you know, attention has been paid to it again. We just don't know what it means. And, you know, they're doing some more work on it, which is great. And what we really need to figure out is, it, is it relevant and is it widespread? And again, we've got lots of different bacteria. So we find a bacterium in a sick dog. Okay, it's interesting. But if we find it in the same number of healthy dogs, okay, it's probably just background noise, probably part of the microbiota. And that's what we don't, right, don't know right now. But talking to some labs that have been looking for various things uh, in samples from sick dogs, they don't seem to be finding this. So I suspect it's not the cause. I wouldn't say no for sure. We still need to look at it. But if it is the cause, it's, it's probably a new to us thing as opposed to a new thing. And by that, I mean, it's, it's a bug that's always been there. We've just never known to look for it. And as okay. opposed to something that's come out of nowhere, like, you know, canine fluted in 2015, where it came in from Asia. So I think all these things really point towards this being something that's caused by our usual suspects, whether it's the ones we know or the ones we don't know, but our kind of normal pathogens, maybe acting differently. But when we think about why disease changes, it could change because the bugs are different, but it often changes because we're different and the animals are different in how we interact with them, how we mix them, their numbers and their susceptibility to all those things. And that's kind of my leading guess where we are right now is it's more of a dog and how we manage dog factor. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard you talk about that a little bit and how, you know, obviously COVID is not the direct cause here, but in the last few years, I know, at least in my own kids, I feel like I've anecdotally seen this where maybe we have had different uh, human to human interactions and therefore different dog to dog interactions. You add in the idea of maybe vaccine hesitancy. What can you say about that as far as, is this an indirect um, result of, of maybe some of those changes? Do we have any data on what those changes are? Do we know for sure that we've had changes in dog-to-dog -dog interactions or vaccine rates when we talk about things like influenza or Bordetella or any of those respiratory viruses? And to tag on one more question, do we know anything about the vaccine status of some of these affected dogs? Yeah, there's a lot of I don't know there, um, again, just because we don't have the data in, this, in the surveillance. So with COVID, there's certainly a lot of plausible things that COVID could have done to us, right? So we've got more dogs. So really, susceptibility at the population level is based on the number of susceptible individuals. So if you have more dogs, that contributes to it. And if they have less immunity, that contributes to it. So we have had an increase in dogs. That was certainly, certainly noticed in COVID. 
Um, and then the immunity side comes in. Okay, well, did they get less vaccination over the last couple of years? We've certainly had disruptions in veterinary care. It's been hard to get into clinics because we have a lot more dogs, plus just restrictions with COVID. So have we seen disruptions in vaccination? Do we have less kennel cough vaccination occurring because dogs haven't gone to kennels and daycares as much over the last couple of years? With restrictions and more people working at home, there's less use of daycares potentially. And, and that's often the trigger for a kennel cough vaccine. You know, it's not your average dog, it's your dog going to these sites. So when we get less of that, then maybe we get less, less vaccination that's happening. We've had changes in how we mix dogs, right? There's just been difference in human behaviors, difference in dog behaviors. And as we kind of rush back to normal, in the fall, do we have more people going back to work? We know that was the case in a lot of areas. Does that mean dogs were starting to go to daycare more? And we don't know that. And you've had, if you've had dogs that have been relatively cloistered for a couple of years and they haven't been exposed to some of these things, then are we condensing three years of exposure into a year? And there's a whole concept of immunity debt, which is really political and it kind of gets you know spun too much and your polar views, but, but it's not a matter of we need to be exposed to infectious diseases for our immune system to work and to be healthy. It's just a matter of fact that being exposed or being vaccinated are the two ways we get immunity. If we have decreased vaccination and we, or we have decreased exposure or a combination of both, we have a bigger population of individuals that are susceptible. So you get more dogs, you get less immune status. And we also have to think about individual dog components too. French Bulldog is now the most common dog breed in the US and brachycephalic breeds, again, we don't have a lot of data on this, but they're more likely to get severely ill when they've got a respiratory infection. So old dogs, really young dogs, dogs with existing heart, lung disease, immunocompromised and brachycephalics, they're more likely to, to get severe disease because they just can't handle any respiratory infection as well as another dog. So that's just maybe one more factor that's been layered on there. So we have a lot of plausible things. And it's like a lot of things, when you look at what causes an outbreak, it's not one thing. It's multiple things that had to happen layered on each other to hit critical mass or to help things sneak up. And that's probably the situation here. We've probably got a lot of things that are driving this. Not one that was the critical one, but each one just had this incremental gain in, in terms of risk. And it's led to what we have now. Okay, so much good information there, Dr. Weiss, but I want to kind of bring it around to our clinicians who are um, on the front line, so to speak, seeing these patients, talking to pet owners who have these concerns. So I want to talk about, let, let's start talking about who needs to be seen. So you have a pet owner that calls, their dog is coughing, maybe it's even a pet owner that wouldn't have called unless they had been aware of, of some of these headlines what should that screening phone call look like? Do you have any advice there? You know, does every pet need to be seen out of an abundance of precaution? What guidance can you give to the, the those people on the front lines answering those calls? Yeah, it's really no different than before. And I think that's the key. And there's been a lot of talk about more severity. And, and we don't really have a good signal that there's a lot more severe disease. We have more disease. So if you have more disease, you're going to see more severe cases. You know, if you have 100 dogs that are sick, maybe one or two get severe disease. If you have 500, then you're looking at five or 10, right? Your numbers go up because of that. So it doesn't look like we've got a situation where dogs are more likely, at that individual dog level, more likely to have serious disease. So we're kind of at where we were before. So lots of figuring out what we would do, right? And is there any value of an animal coming to the clinic where it's going to look at it and say, yeah, it's probably self-limiting disease, take it easy, go home, right? So these dogs that are just, you know, typical upper respiratory tract infection, they're coughing, but they're, they're stable, they're, they're eating fairly well. They don't need to be seen by us because we're not going to do anything about them. So when I talk to, to owners, it's, you know, use the analogy of you, right? If you come home from work one day and you're feeling kind of crappy and you've got a cough 
and you're eating a bit, you don't really want to eat, you want to lay on the couch. Did you go to the doctor? No. Right. So when would you go to the doctor? Well, you went from normal this morning to I'm a hard time breathing this afternoon. Okay, I want to go to the doctor. You know, I'm really flat. I feel like I got hit by a bus. I'm having a hard time breathing. My respiratory rate's up. All those factors that might indicate you got pneumonia or sepsis, then absolutely want to get healthcare, whether it's a dog or a person. So I think with triaging these, how the, how's the dog doing? Running around, bright alert, coughing. Okay, well, you're better off staying at home. It's less stress on the dog. We're not going to do anything in the clinic. And I don't want you in the clinic. It's an infectious case, unless I'm going to do something. How's your dog? Well, it's bright alert, ate breakfast this morning. Now it's just laying there. It's breathing a little bit hard. And it's got this kind of, you know, yellowish stuff coming out of its nose. Okay, I want to see that dog because it's got more severe disease. It's got rapid progression. So severity of disease and, and progression, pace of progression are two things we need to pay attention to. You know, if in doubt, we look at them. It's easier to triage them. And, you know, if we're worried, depending how your clinic setup is, how busy you are, we can even parking lot triage these. You know, you get a look mm -hmm. at them. You don't have to bring them in the hospital if you don't have a good isolation or a good way to bring them in the back. Get a look at them. You know, the respiratory rate's okay. You know, the lungs sound clear. It looks like a typical upper respiratory tract infection. We don't think we need to do radiographs. Then we can just send them on their way at that point. But severity of disease is still the driver, whether that's, you know, this week or last year. Okay, wonderful. And I think I really like that analogy comparing it kind of to human health um, and when we would seek care, because I think that's maybe advice that we can give to our technicians, our assistants, those answering the phones to kind of help have that conversation with pet owners and, yep. and provide some clarity, because I'm sure everyone's getting more calls than ever before. I know my dog was reverse sneezing in the middle of the night the other night. And I was thinking, you know, if all I'd seen were these headlines, I would be calling in the morning to see if my dog was dying. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's great advice. And if we do have a pet that comes in, whether potentially unnecessarily or because they are showing some signs of worsening disease, are you recommending diagnostics on all these pets? Should we be doing chest x-rays? Should we be handling brachycephalic patients differently? And then of course, we'll get into the treatment here in a minute. But as far as diagnostics, can you give us some guidance there? Yeah, it's, it's not changed from what it would have been a year ago. So it really depends on the animal. If they've got classic upper respiratory tract disease, you know, they've got a cough, they've got nasonocular discharge, the lungs sound fine, respiratory rate's okay, they're, rel they're, they're bright, relatively bright alert. They don't have pneumonia, right? With the value of radiographs, again, it never hurts to do radiographs. It never hurts to do a PCR panel. never hurts to do a CBC. But the bang for buck gets fairly low when you've got a dog that's got an upper respiratory tract infection. Okay, now we're progressing and the dog's breathing a little bit harder. It's got a, a productive cough with purulent, mucopurulent debris. You can hear some crackles or wheezes in the lungs. Okay, well, something's going on potentially in the lower respiratory tract. I want to sort that out. And it might not be infectious, right? Sometimes these come in, the dog's got an acute onset of, of, of you know, respiratory disease. You want to make sure it's not congestive heart failure or something else. So we can't tunnel vision too much just because this is big in the press. But if it's got signs that it might be in the lower respiratory tract, then radiographs are a good sign or a good thing to do, maybe some other things. If the animal is really flat out, then we're going to get more aggressive because we're already got septic pneumonia and may have some systemic manifestations of that. So again, the, the patient drives that. Now, you mentioned brachycephalics. I would, I would add senior dogs in there, dogs with kind of significant comorbidities. You know, my threshold for doing things with them is always going to be higher or, or lower, depending on how you want to say it, right? But I'm going to be quicker to do things, whether it's vaccination uh, or whether it's diagnostic testing, just because they can go south a lot quicker so you've got a brachycephalic you know if it's bright alert it's running around it's got a cough it's stable okay it's just like a normal dog with one of those you're looking at and saying i'm not sure um maybe in a normal you know one-year-old bouncy lab i'd ignore it but it's just looks a little bit concerning 
you know, default to the side of doing a little more testing. It's easier to do a radiograph and say, hey, it looks great than it is to sit back and wonder, wow, should I have done something on that dog? Because he's just look, looked a little bit off. So just a little bit quicker to pull the trigger on some things when it comes to these high risks, the breakies and the old dogs, especially. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I love your call out about the tunnel vision, because I feel like that's almost one of the areas we could get in real trouble here is, you know, you have a pet owner that is in the exam room, panicked about the headlines, and we're sitting there reassuring them that, you know, their dog is still pretty bright and alert. It's probably nothing when, you know, formerly we would have thought about all of our differentials for a coughing dog and and listened to the heart closely and all that good stuff. So I love that that call out there. And now I do want to get into treatment because thinking of another common exam room scenario, we have a coughing dog, maybe the dog's pretty stable, but we have that nervous owner or maybe us as a veterinarian is nervous. The last thing we want is for this dog to decompensate when it when it leaves and we're quick to prescribe antibiotics. So I want to give us a minute to really talk about antimicrobial stewardship in these scenarios. And of course, uh, the irony of this hitting right as antimicrobial stewardship was happening in November. Do you mind to talk us through that a little bit? And I know you're probably going to say it's not a lot different than what we have been dealing with before, except I feel like now we've got that level of anxiety and, and that might make us a little faster to pull the trigger. Can you offer some guidance about antibiotics, when to use them, what to use if we are using them, and how long of a course of antibiotics would be warranted in those cases? Yeah, the, the challenge here is often the owners and, and the challenge here is often us. I would say probably easily 50% of the antibiotics we use in dogs with respiratory disease are used to treat people, right? They're used to make me feel better because I'm doing something or make the owner feel better because something's happening. They're not actually going to make the dog feel better. And they might make the dog feel worse. We certainly know adverse events aren't that uncommon with antibiotics. So it's a matter of thinking about the disease process. Do they have something that's classical upper respiratory tract infection? They don't need antibiotics. Okay, so your cough, serous nasal discharge, ocular discharge, that's viral. Or if it's bacterial, it's going to be self-limiting. Antibiotics, the harm is going to outweigh the benefit. Now, the challenge here is the communication side. So I mean, owners don't like to come in and say it's a self-limiting disease, go away, right? They, they, like to, they like us to do something and they don't always consider our, you know, our assessment of the patient doing something. But that's a communication thing we have to get around. Like sometimes, you know, with GI disease, we can provide some things that are, you know, nutraceuticals that may or may not work, but are less harmful than antibiotics. <laughs> Respiratory disease, we don't really have that as much. So that's where the communication comes in. I think it's spinning like good news. You don't need to pill your dog, right? It's, you know, we don't have to worry about the hassle and the stress with the animal and the potential for diarrhea. Don't think we need it. If we do, here's what we'll do. It's always good. If we're not just, if we're not prescribing antibiotics to have, make sure they know we have a plan, right? It's just upper respiratory tract infection. We don't need them. If these things happen, give us a call and we'll change the plan, right? So, you know, X, Y, and Z happen we'll get you right back in or the drugs will be at the counter. So it's good to acknowledge that, yeah, we thought about it as opposed to, well, the vet didn't even talk about antibiotics. So that's something that we can message fairly quickly. So we don't want to use it for upper respiratory tract infections. Occasionally we see these upper respiratory infections that seem to maybe have a secondary bacterial component. So they've progressed and now they've got, you know, a really snotty nose with this, you know, goopy yellow green stuff coming out. Um, you know, we can go on the either way on those and probably most of them don't need antibiotics with, the ISCAID respiratory guidelines, we certainly say it's an option to use antibiotics there. As we start getting lower, then we start getting a higher need for antibiotics. So upper respiratory tract infections, doxycycline is still our first choice. It's good. It's it's a safe, you know, good spectrum for what we deal with. It's a lower tier drug. Works really well in that situation. It also gets kind of weird things like mycoplasma, which may or may not be relevant, but it covers that anyway better than others. 
Uh, and then when we look at things move down in the lungs, we definitely want antibiotics. So if we have pneumonia, we want antibiotics. Um, typically, we're still going to go to doxy as a first-line treatment. It, it's a good drug for lungs. It penetrates really well. Gets into lung tissue and lung fluid a lot better than something like amoxicillin or clapamox, which doesn't penetrate very well. It's got a good spectrum. Uh, and that's something I'm going to use for your typical pneumonia. So you're not flat out dying on oxygen pneumonia. So one of the things I think about when I'm deciding how broad spectrum to go with an antibiotic is what's the likely outcome of this patient if I guess wrong. So the dog comes in, it's got some crackles and wheezes, and it's got a productive cough. But it's fairly stable. Doxy is a good choice. It's probably going to work. And if it doesn't work, I can see how it progresses and I can change drugs. Versus the dog comes in and is oxygen dependent and it's flat out. It's got really nasty sounding lungs, really bad looking lungs on radiographs, hyperemic mucous membrane. So I think it's septic and it's got bad pneumonia. If I guess wrong, that dog's probably dead. So I'm going to be broader and I'm not going to be crazy, but I'm going to be broader spectrum and a little more confidence in what I've got. So that's where I would often go with a combination of clindamycin and enrofloxacin intravenously. Uh, just a, a good combination that covers what we need. It's quite broad spectrum, penetrates lung tissue very well. And that's kind of my go-to for really sick and I'm not sure what's going on yet, lungs. And then ideally we deescalate if we get airway samples or we try to reduce that spectrum over time. But I think really doxy takes us until we get that really sick patient. So get good, safe, oral, lower tier drug that we, we know how to use. Duration's always the question on these. And in, in, in veterinary medicine, we're cowards. So we always go long, right? If and don't go long. Um, and if they don't go longer. So if we look at humans, we, we, you know, dogs aren't people, but the diseases are still analogous enough. We should be thinking about the human data. And there are lots of clinical trials right now in humans that show three to five days of antibiotics is, is the same as seven to 10 days or longer for pneumonia. So your typical community pneumonia, which is equivalent of our dog that comes in with kennel cough that progresses pneumonia, three to five days is lots. And there's a lot more even pushing towards that three day window. Um, you know, so weeks and weeks of antibiotics, definitely treating until radiographic cure really makes no sense at all because radiographs are a lagging indicator. There's inflammation there. We want to eliminate the infection and then the body takes care of everything else. Once the infection has gone, the infection has gone. We don't need more antibiotics. And the more antibiotics we use, you know, more costs, more adverse events, more resistance pressure, more hassle to the owner, all these things. There are lots of reasons why shorter is better. So, you know, five to seven days, realistically, three is probably fine. We just don't have any data, but inching that down from where we've been. And part of it depends on the drug we're using. Part of it depends on the hassles. I'm kind of in the five, five day window right now. But if you've got a dog that you prescribe five days and on day three, it's got horrible diarrhea or it's vomiting really badly and its lungs sound good, I'd stop. It looks like the infection's gone. The, the harms of the antibiotic probably outweigh the benefits. So I wouldn't just pick another antibiotic and switch to, which is what we would typically do. You know, one of the things we, we don't do a very good job of is kind of reassessing and thinking, okay, do we actually need to stop? I planned on seven days or 14 days or five days, or whatever it is, and I'm not there. And I, do I need to switch antibiotics or can I just stop? And a lot of the times we can just stop. So much good guidance there, Dr. Weiss. And I do, we will link in our show, note, show notes to the Worms and Germs blog, but your November 21st post actually outlines all that guidance that you just gave. <clears throat> so I would refer people there. Um, and I know as I was reading that blog post and I read the five-day duration, I was honestly very surprised. And I like to think of myself as a good antimicrobial steward, but it made me realize that maybe I have more to learn than I thought, which um, brings up the First Line app. Do you mind to introduce our audience to that and what that is while we're on the topic of antibiotics and how that can be helpful for veterinarians? 
Yeah, so it's a prescribing app. And one of the challenges we, we have in veterinary medicine is a lack of guidelines. And the last five or 10 years, we've started to see more ISCA, the International Society for Companion Animal Infectious Diseases, has been one of the leaders in that. And we've put together some clinical guidelines. And, and guidelines are good because we, we don't have a lot of data. We have very few really good trials. So we have to put together information from different sources and people and in vitro data and come up with reasonable expectations or, or reasonable guidance. And you know your, your average DVM is not going to do that. We don't have the time to do it, the expertise. The way we get guidelines is we bring in a lot of experts from a lot of different areas, and pharmacologists and microbiologists, infectious disease specialists. And you need to do something like that to come up with good guidance. So we're getting more guidance on how to treat, and that's how we're getting more guidance. Usually that, that shortens durations and narrows the spectrum of the drugs that we're using. And then the big challenge beyond that is getting it out there. Um, you know, textbooks get old very quickly. And you meet, you know, in clinics these days, we want a quick, active, easy to find resource. And there are some really good drug resources out there, but not as many targeting really kind of quick and dirty antibiotics. So first line is a, it's a human platform that's designed for human healthcare, where they put in treatment guidelines, antibiotic susceptibility information, thing like that. So we've spun that off into a, a version um, that has guidance for dogs and cats and some various other things. So you can click on dog and then respiratory and then pneumonia, and you'll get basically we've talked about here, get kind of the drug recommendations, the duration recommendations, plus more information on the drugs, the doses we recommend, uh, and the bugs. So what will usually work or what won't usually work. So it's meant to be a, a quick and easy reference. It's, it's meant to help give some confidence in doing some things. That's one of our biggest battles is, you know, we, we may see the data and see the recommendations, but it's sometimes hard to make that leap. But I was like that too. You know, when I started going with shorter durations or started doing things where I'd say, you know, I can ignore that bacterium. Like, I don't think it's relevant. You know, it's a bit scary at the start. Then you get a comfort level. And I think having resources like this makes it easier because you can say, okay, well, here's what's recommended. It's not me just making this up, right? I'm not saying five days. because I think, hey, we should go shorter and that's the doing people. It's true, but someone else is also saying this, so we can refer to it. So it's something you can kind of pull out in the clinic, you know, step in the back, and in you know, 20, 30 seconds have a recommendation. A great resource, and we will try to link that in our show notes too. And when we talk about treatment for these respiratory cases, are cough suppressants ever indicated? Yeah, we don't really understand that very well. Um, yes and no. I think initially, I think we're kind of thinking more like we, they do in humans where we don't suppress coughs at the start more you suppress coughs when they're really problematic and when they're later in disease, especially when you've got that post-infectious inflammatory component. And we typically don't want to suppress a productive cough because there's a reason there's productive cough is to bring that stuff up. So with acute disease, um, it wouldn't be as common as in kind of this post-viral cough that we see not uncommonly. And I think COVID and people have shown that really well. The number of people out there probably listening to this that, you know, had COVID and they had a cough for two or three weeks or more after it's, it's quite high because you incite inflammation in the lungs, you eliminate the infection, but that inflammation is still there. And that's where you think, start thinking about steroids or cough suppressants or both. So acute disease, uh, typically we're not going to do a lot of cough suppression, more chronic disease. If you've got a case where that cough is incredibly problematic, then you might kind of push a little bit more. But if it's early and the animal's quite sick and it's a productive cough, a little bit warier doing that. 
Okay, great. And I know you've given us a lot of good talking points when it comes to pet owners. Is there any further advice? I know even in like my Facebook moms group, there have been people talking about not getting their pet groomed, not bringing their pet in for routine health care. Um, and then of course we talk about vaccines. Do you have any further tips there? Uh, I know pet owners, if they feel helpless, are you telling them to come in and get those respiratory vaccines? Yeah, well, a lot of it's just, you know, first things relax, right? We've got more disease, but it's like kids, right? We, you know, September, you know, there's gonna be a spike in colds and kids. We don't freak out about that. We just know when they start going to school, they're going to come home with a cold. Um, so it's not to dismiss the situation we're in now, but just to realize we normally get ups and downs. And it's cost benefit. We have to keep doing this. Like we do this without thinking about it, but we always do risk assessments, right? What's the benefit and what's the risk of doing something? So you get asked what, whether a dog should go to daycare. Okay, well, what's the risk? Um, what can we do to mitigate that risk? And what's the value of that? So if you have to work and you work 12 hours and you're by yourself, your dog's probably going to daycare or you're finding some other route, right? There's a value there. So what do we do to reduce the risk? Well, you have a good daycare with a small population of the same dogs. It's run well, they're healthy. If they're sick, they aren't allowed to be there. We vaccinate. We don't vaccinate against all the respiratory diseases, but we vaccinate against a couple of the big ones. We layer in all these protections. It's that Swiss cheese model you may have heard with COVID, where you do a bunch of things that by themselves aren't overly effective. They have a lot of holes in them. You start layering these on, you get good degree of protection. Like in general, when we think about risk, there are two components. It's the risk of exposure and the risk of a bad outcome. So risk of exposure relates to contacts. So the more contacts you have, and the more high risk contacts. So if you're going to the dog park and you're encountering 20 random dogs every day, and it might be a different 20, and you have no idea what their health status is, their vaccination status, you know that's high risk. If you're going to a daycare where you've got 10 dogs, it's the same 10 dogs, and you know they're vaccinated, that's low risk. If you're it's a pack walk where you're walking with the same three friends and their dogs, that gets lower risk because you know more and more about these. So if we're concerned, we drop the high-risk contacts. So if you know there's respiratory disease going on in your area, or it sounds like there is, and, and you're worried about that, then you know maybe we don't go to the off-leash dog park. Maybe we go somewhere else or keep the dog on leash for a little bit, or you, you scrutinize what your daycare is. So, we, so the exposure, we can do some things to reduce exposure without just locking the dog in the basement and never taking it out. And then there's the risk to the dog. So like we've said a few times, the, the implications will be different for some dogs. So if you have a two-year-old, bouncy, healthy dog, the risk of serious disease is pretty low. If you have a 15-year-old with heart disease, lung disease, the risk is fairly high. So I'm going to approach that a little bit differently. I've got a, you know, an old dog that's brachycephalic breed and it's got some underlying respiratory issues and it's respiratory disease in the area. Well, I really probably don't want to go to an off-leash dog park. I really don't want to encounter random dogs that are probably higher risk. I'd rather do the socialization of that with a known group. So we start putting all these things together. Um, and then again, the benefits you. So are there other things we can do to have that? So if getting out, if going to the off-leash dog park is that person, is your social experience, right? That's what you do. You hang out with people at the dog park. Means a lot to you, means a lot to your dog, but you're going to accept more risk there. And if we're going to accept more risk, then you think about what we can do to reduce that risk. So, okay, if there's a coughing dog, we go away that day, right? If, you know, I make sure my dog's healthy, make sure my dog's vaccinated, do all these little things to layer on as much protection as I can, just realizing I'm accepting a higher degree of risk because that's an important activity for me. So there's not a one size fits all, but it's still the general concept. Let's reduce the exposure risk as much as we can. Let's be 
more strict when we think there's more disease and we've got a dog that's at higher risk for a serious outcome and vaccination against paraflu and bordetella uh, is, isn't going to cover us for everything but those are two leading causes and the vaccines are pretty good well, Dr. Weiss, you are a wealth of information. Um, we are very lucky to have your calm guidance amongst these headlines. I really do encourage our audience to check out the Worms and Germs blog. We will link that in our show notes, but it's Worms and Germs wormsandgermsblog.com. It is a great resource um, of all of Dr. Weiss's thoughts on the topic and many other topics as well. Um, we will also link in our show notes a webinar that was done on canine respiratory illness um, in partnership with Trupanion that Dr. Weiss was a member of. So again, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate all of this great advice for our veterinarians. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of Clinicians Brief, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including a video version that we have on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts. Or if you'd like, drop us a line at podcasts at vetmedics.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a Vet Medics production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.